than that. Even if it's a, uh, an event that we look back on every year, was there, was there more to Jesus coming than just a one-time event? And we think the answer is yes. We think it's an invitation into a new way of relating to God and to one another, a new way of living life. So it's kind of this whole idea of the new normal. And each week we're going to take a different aspect of that uh, new normal and kind of uh, kick it around a little bit. Today what we're talking about is access, our access to the Father. This is Luke 1, starting in verse 8. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Don't be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you're to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He's never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So Old Testament access to God was very, um, was very limited. You can even look at the uh, physical... Uh, layout of the temple. It's kind of like there was a crack, and that was all you got. Uh, the temple was set up in these different areas. There was the court of Gentiles and women and men, and then there was the outer court, the holy place where, uh, or there's the inner court, the holy place where priests could go. That's where Zechariah was. And then there was a most holy place, um, which only the high priest could go, only one day a year, the Day of Atonement, and uh, under very strict guidelines. It's not in the Bible, but tradition says that um, when the high priest went into this most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was, where God's presence, he got, that's where he lives, they would tie a rope around his ankle and put bells on him in case he messed up while he was in there and God killed him. They had to drag him out. You couldn't even go in there and get the body. It was a very, very limited, very strict access. Most people didn't have access to God. Even in that passage we read, it says the worshipers were, were where? Outside. And Zechariah was in the temple, and even he wasn't in the most holy place. There were exceptions, David, Moses, uh, Abraham, Jeremiah, Isaiah. There are exceptions, but for the most part, regular people did not feel like they had access to God. Again, it was very limited access, very few people, very specific occasions uh, throughout the year. The new covenant, what Jesus has done is he's opened the door wide. Huge lanes, just like Georgia's rush defense. Plenty of Lots of space to get through there. Anybody can come through. That's what Jesus did. Hebrews 10 says this. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain, that is His body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. If you remember, it's in, I know it's in Matthew and Mark, I'm not sure if it's in Luke as well. When Jesus dies, the curtain that separates the holy place from the most holy place is torn in two. It's not a drape. It's a really thick curtain that's designed to keep people out. You don't need to go in here because if you do, it's not going to be good for you. And so when that curtain is ripped from top to bottom, if you're a Jew, what you see is the entrance into God's presence 
has been opened. What up to, for thousands of years, has been um, restricted for me. What I've been unable to experience, now that curtain, the barrier has been removed and I can enter fully into God's presence. It's a huge shift in people's relationship with God. It's a new normal. Instead of relating to God at a distance, instead of your major responsibility be uh, to bring offerings to the temple that then the priest can take to God because you can't be in His presence, now you can come boldly before His throne because the sacrifice for your sins has been made. Everything that would keep you from His presence has been dealt with. Again, it's a radically different way of dealing uh, with the Lord. And that's, that's what Christmas is for us. Jesus is coming in order to um, grant us access to the Father. It's interesting to me that even Zechariah, who's a priest, is surprised when, he, when this angel appears, which an angel would be surprising. And his first thought is, I'm in trouble. But the angel says, don't, don't be afraid. Your prayer's been heard. It's gotten through. God's answering. Even that, I think, shows a picture of people's perspective on who God, even a priest, a faithful and righteous priest, what his perspective on God is at the time. And we don't have to have that anymore. God's not far off in distance. He, in distant. he said, you come, come in. You have full access to me. The way I want to look at this is the idea of covenant. Um, there's lots of different covenants, in, particularly in the Old Testament. We're going to just boil it down and say for for our understanding, a covenant is an agreement between two people, in our case between us and God, um, who have said, I'm going to fully give myself to you. So an agreement between two people who have chosen, who have said, I'm going to fully give myself to you. The idea you'll see throughout the Bible is this phrase, I'll be your God and you'll be my people. Now obviously, we're not bringing the same thing to the table. We're not equals with God. He gets kind of the short end of the stick on that. What we get from him being our God is much more than what he gets from us being his people. But those are the terms that he set up. And so that's this covenant, that's this invitation that's there for us. He's inviting us. What you have access to is a covenantal relationship with God. And I want to unpack what that looks like. Again, that's not a, a term that we really use. And we don't have a, a lot of examples of covenantal relationships in uh, the culture where we live, and I want to look at it two different ways from Abraham. It's kind of ironic, I guess, that we're using an Old Testament guy to talk about a New Testament concept, but uh, he was a friend of God, and there's some things for us in that. This is James 2 speaking about Abraham. Uh, I'll start in verse 21. Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that said, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. I don't want you to get hung up on that faith works thing. We've talked before, this, this uh, relationship that God is inviting us into, this relationship... Um, of intimacy with him. That's kind of the first aspect of this covenant I want to talk about is an invitation to intimacy. It's based on faith. Faith is trust. Trust always results in actions. We've talked about that before. So don't get hung up on faith and work, uh, those, that terminology in James. It's the same thing that we talk about all the time. Faith is trust. Trust always results in action. And that's what the work is. It's actually trusting God in your life. That's that, that is what trust, trust if, you're not, if you're not trusting, then you don't have trust, I guess is maybe the easiest way 
to say that. So there's always an action that follows saying that we trust the Lord. The um, Genesis 22 is interesting picture to me. You should go back and read it this week. Abraham is, a, is at this point 112, 113 years old. God at 75 says to him, you're going to have a son and I'm going to make a great nation out of you. He and his wife, Sarah, had never been able to have children. And so Abraham says, all right, let's, okay. 25 years later, when he's 100 years old, he actually, Sarah gives birth to Isaac. And what God has said is Isaac's the, he's the man. Through Isaac, I'm going to accomplish my purposes. Through Isaac, this promise to be a great nation, it's coming through him. Isaac's 12 or 13 at the time. And God says in verse 20, in chapter 22, it opens with God tested Abraham. And so what God says to Abraham is, hey, I want you to sacrifice your son. And you can imagine those of you who are parents, if you're not a parent, you think that through. Sacrifice your son, not just your son, but the child through whom I've promised to make you a great nation. So this is not just your kid, this is this child who God has said, it's through him that I'm giving you everything that I've promised to you. I want you to sacrifice him. Now for me, you don't have to agree with me on, I had a couple of people after the 9 o'clock kind of get on me a little bit about the, um, some of what I'm going to share. You don't have to agree with me theologically um, at all. But this is just my take on what we see here. What I see, to me, I think oftentimes we, we see God as this professor who has, who's, a, who's testing a hypothesis that he already knows is true. And he's objective, and he's uh, dispassionate, and he's, distant, he, and he's uh, just kind of clinically check-marking things that he, he already knows how everything's going to turn out. I see God much more as a parent in the stands cheering for his children. God is omniscient. He knows everything, and I think he can decide not to know stuff if he wants to. Some of you DVR'd the football game yesterday, and it was over before you watched it, and you chose not to know the score so that when you watched it, it was live. It already happened, the score was already, it was already done, but for you, it was the live event. And I think that's what's going on here. Verse 12 says this, Don't lay a hand on the boy, this angel says. Don't do anything to him. Now I know that you fear God, because you've not withheld from me your son, your only son. What God was looking for from Abraham. He had invited him into this covenant relationship. There's an invitation to intimacy that's all based on trust. Do you trust me enough to sacrifice your son who is the child of promise. And I think Father, Son, and Spirit, and all the angels are in heaven watching what Abraham's going to do. The Bible says he got up early the next morning, expression of faith. He didn't wait. He didn't debate. He might not have slept a whole lot the night before. But as soon as he could, he got up. He takes his servants with him. At some point, he gets to this mountain, and he says to the servants, it's very interesting, he says, y'all stay here. We're going to go up and we're going to come back. He uses plural both times. Hebrew says that Abraham had decided in his heart, well, Isaac is the child of promise, so I guess if I kill him, God's going to raise him from the dead. That level of faith. I'm going to go ahead and sacrifice him because God says so, and I have so much trust in his word and his character that I, I, just, I guess he's going to raise him from the dead because we're coming back down here as well. And so Abraham puts Isaac on the altar, and he raises his knife, and he's going to kill him. And I think at that moment, all of heaven erupts in a happy way because he'd done it. I think they're going to God, the Father. Are you, are you sure? Do you want 
are you sure? And I think the father's saying, I picked the right guy. I'm telling you, I picked the right guy. He's going to do it. I know him. He's going to come through. And I think there's, there's real tension in this. Somebody after, after the 9 o'clock service said, what if he hadn't done it? Would it have disappointed God? And I said, I don't know if it disappoints, but I think it would have grieved him. For sure. He had chosen Abraham. He had revealed himself to Abraham. And what he was saying was, Abraham, do you trust me? I'm inviting you in to this deep level of intimacy and relationship with me. And what it requires of you is, fully to, is to fully trust me. Even in this crazy, ridiculous we request, command to kill your son. Will you trust me even in the midst of that? And when Abraham raises the knife, everybody knows. Abraham and everybody else knows. The answer is yes. The answer is yes. And that's what God is inviting you to as well. A a relationship of deep intimacy that's based on trust. It's those words that we saw. Friend, child, spouse. That's what he's looking for from you. Will you trust him at that level? The second thing also from Abraham's life, it's a challenge to influence God. In Genesis 18, God shows up with, it's called the three visitors Most people say one of them was Jesus before he became incarnated. So it's a pre-incarnate version of Jesus. He shows up with these two angels. And he confirms his covenant to Abraham. And he's going to go and destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And what God says is, should I keep this from Abraham? And the answer is, of course not. He's my covenant partner. There's no reason for me to keep this from him. I'm going to push pause and go over here because I don't want you thinking about how could God destroy a city. Sometimes the most uh, merciful thing you can do is to cut off a limb that has gangrene. And Sodom and Gomorrah were rotten. They were filthy, rotten. And uh, the Bible says that the, the, the cry over them had reached heaven. It's interesting, again, that God, who's omniscient, says, you know, I'm going to go see. I want to go see if what I've heard about them, if it's as bad as what I've heard. So he kind of boots on the ground, goes and sees, and he realizes it's as bad as what he's heard. And so he does, he wipes out the whole city. And again, it's an expression of mercy, so what's going on there doesn't contaminate everybody else around. And it's an expression of of justice as well. So let's put that over here and let's get back to Abraham and God. And what God says is, shall I keep this from Abraham, what I'm going to do? Of course not. He's my covenant partner. I'm going to tell him. And then whatever verb you want to use, Abraham either bargains or negotiates or intercedes or pleads. He does something. With God. Well, God, if there's 50 righteous people, you're not going to destroy the city. Well, no. What if there's 45? Well, no. What if there's 40? What if there's 30? What if there's 20? What if there's 10? Just going back and forth. Philip Yancey, when he talks about this passage, says what's interesting to him is that Abraham stops before God does. You wonder if Abraham had said, what if there's just one? Will you save the city then? What God would have said. There's this, this back and forth. If decisions in your house are made in the kitchen, Around the table, God's inviting Abraham around the kitchen table. If they're made in the boardroom, he's inviting Abraham into the boardroom. What he's saying is, I'm giving you access to me. I'm giving you influence at this high level of what I'm doing. You're not just a servant who I'm I'm giving you marching orders to. You're not just a soldier. I'm bringing you in to to the center of things where decisions are made. I'm allowing you to have influence with me. I think it's in Exodus 32... Moses comes off the mountain and the Israelites have made this golden calf and God is ticked at them. 
And he says, I'm wiping them all out, and I'm starting over with you, Moses. And Moses prays and says, God, don't do it. I think it's verse 14. It says, God relented and didn't do what he threatened. He allowed Moses to have influence on him. And some of you are saying, well, you just kind of got after the omniscience part of God, and now you're getting after his sovereignty or his omnipotence. God is 100% omnipotent. He can do whatever he wants. And part of what I think he wants to do is to be influenced by his children. You're influenced, those of you who are parents, by your children all the time. You're going to be influenced by them in 20 minutes when they start begging you for a cookie. And you're going to say, okay, does that in any way compromise your sovereignty as their parent? Are you somehow less than because you give your kid a cookie when they ask for it? No. And if it's not true for you, then why is it true for him? Why can't he allow us to influence him? That's the way he set it up. He said, I had a professor one time, he said God had to tighten his belt when he created us. He had to make room for us. And I think that's what you see here. He's looking for covenant partners. He's making room for our input in what he's doing. And it doesn't diminish his sovereignty at all. It doesn't lessen his power at all because it's what he set up. Just like it doesn't for you as a parent. Well, what if, I, what if we push too much? What if we ask for... Then he's not going to do it. For goodness sakes, none of you are cute enough to get God to do anything that he doesn't want to do. It's never going to happen. Ever. Ever, 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 ever. It's not... You can't manipulate him. You can't overpower him. You can't charm him. None of those things. There's this massive amount of freedom for us, just like with your kids. If they ask you for six, you're going to say no. It, of course you are, I think. If they ask for 12, you're going to say no. You're confident in who you are as a parent. And because you're secure as a parent, you allow your children to influence you without thinking you're compromising your parentness. How much more for God? He's not insecure about his sovereignty, he's not insecure about his power or his knowledge, or his wisdom, or his mercy, or his justice, or his kindness, or his grace. He is 100% confident in who he is. So he can say, sure, have some influence with me. Because we're not going to change him. But it's real influence. It's what it means to be a covenant partner with him. For most of us, we don't want that. God, why don't you just tell me what to do? And then if it doesn't go so well... I can blame you. I don't want influence at that level. I'm a worker bee. I'm just a soldier in the army. I'm just a part of the body. I don't want influence at that level. I don't want what you may be doing in my office or in my city or in my family. or in my, I don't want any of that to hinge on what I may or may not do. Too much responsibility. It's in um, Exodus. God appears on this mountain, and not physically, but there's thunder and there's lightning and dark clouds and all these things that signify God is there. Who wants to go? Moses, why don't you go? We're fine down here. Well, let's build this thing around the mountain, this barrier, make sure nobody goes up there. It's the most useless fence in the history of the earth. Nobody wants to go up that mountain. None of them do. We'll stay down here where it's safe. Moses, you go up there, figure out what God wants, and then you come tell us. 
That's how many of us, that's where we live. We keep them out here at arm's length. I'm just going to do my thing. If at some point I'm messing up big time, why don't you let me know and get me right back on the right track? But for goodness sakes, don't ask me what I want. Don't do that. That's one of the reasons we do birthday things is I want you to get comfortable asking God for what you want. If it's an acoustic guitar, if it's a robotic dog, or if it's whatever it is. Like, that's good to be able to say to God, this is what I want. Again, those of you who are parents, do you think less of your children when they tell you what they want? No. And if they ask for something and you don't think it's the best thing for them, do you give it to them? No. Same thing with him. What if I push too much? What if I go too far? You're not, I know most of you, you're never going to do that. The ditch we fall into is that we leave too much on the table, not that we're too aggressive with God. Job, one and two, the last two chapters, I think it's like 41, 42. Everything in between is a bit of a train wreck. Read those four. You get a picture of what I'm talking about. Job's life, that Satan goes to God and says, I wanna, I'm going to mess with Job. And God says, all right, here are the parameters. And Satan ruins Job's life, takes away everything from him, his health, his family, his wealth, everything. The whole middle section is these friends of Job who come and are basically saying to him, you're getting this because you deserved it. You messed up and God is punishing you. And Job is fighting back saying, no, I didn't. I'm a righteous guy. I didn't do anything to deserve this. And if God wants to charge me with something, then bring it. He and I will go, he's courtroom scene. Let's he can bring the charges against me and I'll refute them. Bold. And they go back and forth like this. Who knows what the time period is. And at the end, what happens? God rebukes Job. Job, you're talking about stuff you don't understand. There are things going on here that you can't begin to fathom. And y'all know how the book ends. God curses Job for the rest of his life. and says, because you overstepped your bounds with me, I'm gonna, you're, in the, you're in time out. I'm putting you in the jar for the rest of your life. Right? You remember the story? Y'all hadn't read Job? <laughs> what does he do? He gives him back double everything the enemy stole. You're not, it's not, you don't have to worry about that. You don't have to worry about being insolent. That's not your heart. You know that's not your heart. That's not what you're going for, and he knows that. And he knew that about here, Job. I'm going I'm to frame this for you and kind of put you back in your place if you like that idea, and then I'm going to give you twice of what everything, of everything that you lost because you passed. You made it through. And that's, I think for us, there's, there's comfort in that. You don't need to worry about overstepping. What if I ask for something and it's selfish? Well, he probably won't give it to you. Big deal. That doesn't mean he's, going to, he's not going to shoot you with a lightning bolt. He's going to, ref, he's going to refine your character through all of those things. What he's saying is I'm looking for partners here. I'm, I'm willing to give, this is God, to give myself fully to you. Will you give yourself fully to me? Will you engage with me as children, as friends, as spouses? Will you trust me enough for this deep level of intimacy, this, to, that context of trust, for that intimacy to form? Will you take me at my offer, my invitation, will you, have, will, you try to, will you influence me? Will you get in here with me on what's going on in your family and in your work and in your city? Will you, let's, let's do this part 
together. The closest thing we have to um, a covenant is marriage, and unfortunately, it's in most cases, we don't see that lived out. The, the consequences of breaking covenant in biblical times were not were bad. There's no such thing as a no-fault covenant breaking thing. And that's where we live now, where we've lost a lot of the uh, permanency and the commitment and the, really the seriousness of covenant. But if you've gone to a traditional wedding ceremony, if that's what you did when you got married or you've been to one, you've seen kind of the, the underlying uh, elements of covenant there. You have this declaration of intent. You know, the girl, the, the bride walks in with her dad and the groom is here and they all look at the officiant. And the first thing you do is you declare your intent where the, the pastor the, the, says to the guy, will you? And he lists these things. Take this woman, Matt. Will you take Lisa to be your wife? To live together in holy marriage. And we love her and honor her and comfort her and cherish her in sickness and in health and forsaking all others, be faithful to her as long as you both shall live. And Matt says, I will. And then you ask the same thing to Lisa. And she says, I will. And at that moment, who gives this woman away? And Lisa's dad can say, well, I know what Matt just said he was going to do. He said he's going to create this environment for her. And so I can put my hand or her hand in Matt's hand. Her mother and I, we give Lisa to this man, because he said, Matt has just said, I'm creating this covenant. This is what I'm offering you, Lisa, to say yes or no to. Your choice to say yes or no, but this is what I'm offering to you. And then you move into the vows. It's not enough for Matt just to say, I will. He actually has to commit to what he's doing. Matt, repeat after me. I, Matt, take you, Lisa, to be my wife, to have and to hold from this day forward for better, for worse, for richer, for poor, in sickness and health. All of those that he's saying, it's covenant here. This is my solemn vow. This is the covenant that I'm making with you. The danger when people write their own vows, they just talk about how much they love each other. Of course you love each other, you wouldn't be at the altar. It doesn't matter how much you love each other. Honestly, what matters is are you going to stick when you don't love each other? That's what a covenant is. It provides the security for intimacy. That's, what, that's the point of this. You can know. Lisa can know. It doesn't matter if my hair turns gray. It doesn't matter if I gain 100 pounds. It, none of that matters. He's already said he's sticking with me no matter what. It doesn't matter if we can have children or we can't or if our kids are brats or they're wonderful. It does, none of that matters. It doesn't, none of it does because he said he's with me. No matter what, that's covenant. And that's what God is inviting you into. And then you have the rings. And what does the pastor say? This is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. It's a, it's a token. It reminds Matt every time he plays with his ring. I'm, I've entered into a covenant with somebody. Anyone who looks at his left hand will know he's spoken for. He's already he's in a covenantal relationship. He's off the market. He's taken. It's a physical reminder because we're physical beings and we need that. It's, it's similar to baptism or communion, these physical acts that we do that uh, correspond to something internal that's going on in our heart. It serves again as a reminder to us. And this is how I want us to close. We're going to do that. We're going to have this kind of physical reminder. You want to grab that? So we have a door that Les is going to need some help moving. 
Lesson David may <laughs> Matt, they may need you as well. Not that I doubt them. Only two guys did it at nine. We'll see if these two guys can do it at 11. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Watch everything. Perfect. Keep that door open. This is what I want you to do. We're going to, have, we're going to close with ministry. And I want you to come through this door. I don't care if, if Ashley Saunders wants ministry. She's going to walk all the way around. And she's going to come through this door as a physical act that says, I recognize I have full access to the Father. The door is completely open. It's wide open. You can Everything that Jesus' death and resurrection secured for us is available to her. And she's going to walk through the door saying, I, I get that. She's not, you're not going to forget walking through a door. Just like It's like a wedding ring. It's not magic. It's a reminder because we need those kinds of things. So, Bo, you come up. I'm going to spend a couple of minutes praying, and then I want you guys to respond uh, during this song. God, we thank you for access. Uh, Y'all might not uh, know this, but it's one of the unique features of Christianity. If you take take a a religion like Islam, it's God's already Allah. He's decided everything, and you just you figure it out and submit, or you go to hell. Those are your choices. Jesus' father is different. The God of the Bible is different. He's saying, I desire a relationship with you. I'm not looking for servants. I'm looking for sons. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. I'm letting you in on what I'm doing. I'm calling you friends. That verse, you're not going to call me master anymore. You're going to call me husband. Doesn't it all diminish God? Of course he's God. Of course he's king. Of course he's Lord. And what he's asking for is this you want to be in a covenantal relationship with me. I'll give you everything I am. Will you give me who you are and what you are? Will you trust me at a deep and profound place? God, I pray for those here this morning who struggle with this whole idea of intimacy. They're as faithful as the day is long, but they don't feel you. They don't sense your presence. God, I pray when they walk through this door that they would nothing magic about the door but God as they in faith say yes I'm trusting you and as you as their father is cheering them on from heaven say yes God I pray that they would sense your pleasure and your presence in their heart God I pray for those of us who are more comfortable keeping you at arm's length this idea of influence we don't we don't want it worker bees. God, I pray that we would hear you saying to us, I want you at the table with me. There's some things that we need to talk about. Of course I'm going to let you know what I'm doing. You're my covenant partner. Of course I'm going to share it with you. And I want to know what you want as well. Not just your 
sterilized Sunday school desires. I want to know what you want. And I want you to trust me enough to ask me. And I'll give it to you if it's the best thing. But I want you to ask. God, I pray that we would all hear you speaking to us this morning. We would recognize that we can boldly approach you because Jesus has made the way. It's no merit in us. It's because Jesus has removed the barrier. The, the veil has been torn. And God, we want to get as close as possible. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Ministry teams, y'all can come and get these line up. That'd be great. You guys can stand. Bo will dismiss us when we're done. And again, I want to encourage y'all to come forward this morning for prayer. Stay is washed away.